0: This is Episode 2 of the Health Translations Podcast. Health Translations is Australia's largest directory for translated health and wellbeing resources. There are over 18,000 resources available in more than 105 languages. This series explores the way culture, language and health interact. In each episode, we talk to healthcare professionals and community members about the role translated health information plays in their lives. My name is Nicola and I work for the Center for Culture, Ethnicity and Health, a not-for-profit organisation that manages health translations on behalf of the Department of Health and Human Services. We're about to speak with Eva Hussain, founder of language service company Polaron. Eva is a recognised leader in the fields of translations and European citizenship. She regularly presents and lectures at conferences, universities and training institutions on the topics of language services, cultural awareness and history.
1: Eva, when did Polaron start? We started in 2000, at that point it was just one language, interpreting and translating in in Polish, and there was plenty of work actually, so this is back in 2000. By about 2002 we expanded into other languages and now we provide language services in about 120 different languages, so we've got 30 staff and probably around a thousand interpreters and translators in various languages in Australia.
0: And who are your main clients or main audience for that interpreting?
1: Um, so we have a couple, actually. The, the first main one would be uh, service providers in Australia. So, you know, diabetes Victoria, Cancer Council, New South Wales, the government, mm-hmm. as well as um, some corporates or lawyers, uh, mining companies. It, it just varies. Every day is different at Polaron, actually.
0: And how did you establish those alliances, particularly with those, you know, those organisations in the health sector mm. like
1: Diabetes Victoria? So we have worked really hard at, at establishing and maintaining relationships. But that also comes from the fact that I used to work for um, Cancer Council. I was a bilingual educator there for some years. I've been involved with uh, various community organisations like Polish Community. Um, uh, Council of Victoria, Australian Society of Polish Jews, also with um, VMC. I am one of the representatives um, on the south-east, southeastern, I think it's called region. So, um, really, a lot of networking, a, a, a lot of trying to establish genuine relationships. So, not just for the sake of knowing people, but really, you know, trying to understand who they are, what they need, and how we can work with them.
0: Okay, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what do these organisations need, and how do you, you know?
1: How do you facilitate that? Yes. So because I started as a translator and interpreter, I could see um, when I was working just on my own in just one language pair, I could see a lot of issues. So, you know, I'd be given a translation of a media release, let's say, and the way it was written was that it meant nothing. So when you translated it, it also had to mean nothing in the other language, if that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. So a lot of, you know, badly written stuff that, 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 that was just really meaningless. And um, it used to frustrate me a lot and where I would think, you know, we're spending all this money on, on stuff that nobody is going to read. And I knew that for sure because I was quite involved in the Polish community. So when I, you know, started working in other languages, I, I kept saying to people, you know, don't waste money on translation. Do stuff that people actually are going to read that they need. And maybe translation is not the right way to communicate with people because maybe the community you want to address doesn't even, um, is not even able to read or, or, or write. I guess what sets us apart is if, from other language service companies we, we try and talk to people at the outset um, you know often translations just land on somebody's desk um, you know you happen to be bilingual your boss comes and says here we've got you know ten thousand dollars do some translations so the starting point is for a lot of people just not knowing what to do and who and how to talk um, to those communities so mo- most um, sort of mainstream um, community organizations have a, a requirement or they, they're obligated by law to um, communicate in a way that everybody understands. But I find that, you know, cultural and linguistic diversity is is, uh, is problematic for many organisations because they might have already waiting lists um, for their services or there's just no one to really care about diversity and some organisations are just ticking boxes. So in, in any case, when we talk to, to, you know, prospective clients or current clients, we try and explain to them that it's not about ticking boxes or, or just doing a translation and printing it off at a great cost and for it to sit under someone's desk. It's about learning about your community, um, engaging them, you know, actually asking them, how do you consume information? You know, how do you you want it presented? Um, What is it that we should be doing for you? So you can't have a cookie cutter approach to communication with um, diverse audiences. It, It just doesn't work.
0: Right, and can you talk specifically maybe about one instance with a community where you have had to
1: tailor the way that you approach things? Mm, Absolutely. So one good example is Quit Victoria, so they help people stop smoking. Mm -hmm. When they develop their resources, the aim is to, to help people not smoke. But uh, the way they approach it is that, you know, let's say Chinese speaking community and Arabic speaking community will have um, different cultural practices. They will have different uh, cultural events. Different things will be important to this community. So they start with they they will write um, a basic resource and then uh, we will go to the community and ask them what sort of images do you want on your um, on your brochure? Uh, what should we be talking about? So, for for example, for the Chinese community, what's important is the the money. In other words, don't smoke because it'll cost you health, but it'll also cost you a packet. So they wanted um, images on their brochures that show that. For the Arabic-speaking communities, so broadly speaking, because it's not a homogenous community, of Mm. course, they wanted to talk about the families, the children, the grandchildren. So the about twenty percent of that message is slightly different mm, okay. um, because of how people understand information. So the the Chinese speaking community wanted a, a checklist. You know, that's how I stopped smoking. And step one, step two, step three. For the Arabic speaking communities, it wasn't about that. It was about seeing uh, uh, an image of a grandparent with a child on the on the cover. And for them to think, oh, right, okay, yes, we should stop smoking for our families. So whilst the main message for Quit Victoria is the same and it is, we will help you stop smoking, how that message is delivered depends on the community they want to talk to. And that's the best way to do it so that it's actually effective um, rather than just ticking boxes. So they've done um, a lot of that type of work. Uh, where they adjusted the images, even the colours, the way that the information is presented. Um, and it's not just about translating. They might do a podcast, they might do a video, um, they might go on social media to, to, to try and, um, you know, communicate with some communities. Um, so it's not just one size fits all solution. Um, so that's that's a really good example, I think, yeah.
0: Yeah, great. And so, when you're talking about tailoring resources have you you've developed resources, but have you also used health translations for fact sheets or resources, or what's your relationship with health translations
1: yeah, I think look, I think it's honestly one of the best resources out there that's online, and um, I know that lots of people talk to me about it um outside of Australia as well, so um, I've not seen anything like that globally, where you know, resources are not just placed there, but they're really well organised. So they're not deeply buried uh, somewhere you know, in, on the website, but it's really easy to find anything. Um, everything's really well organised. And we like um, health translations because we can refer people to it if they ask us questions. I really like the fact that uh, health translations take feedback on board. Mm -hmm. Um, So if a community member, um, you know, says, you know, I've looked at diary translations and there's a few issues, I can then report it to you, ask the community member to say, you know, um, send them an email or give them a ring or talk to them. And I know that it will be taken very seriously and, um, you know, there'll be a discussion about what it means. Because, you know, translation is not an exact science, You, you know, just because somebody has an opinion doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the translation, but there's a process behind that. Of, of you know, taking that feedback on board and trying to work out is this feedback valid or um, is it somebody's opinion, how do we navigate through that, how do, how do we negotiate you know, communities' feedback that may well be relevant or may, may not be. So our relationship with Health Translations is that we're very supportive of that initiative because we find that because the resources are vetted and, and kind of approved, if, if you like, uh, we know that we can rely on them because they're accurate, and there's been a process behind um, putting them online. So it's not just, uh, um, you know, translating by machine, translating, translation, and hoping for the best. There's a lot more to it. Yeah. And we're supportive of that, yeah.
0: And are there particular resources that you see yourself using most frequently or referring people to most frequently?
1: Yes, I can. In fact, um, I think only just last week, I had a look at health translations resources that were from Centrelink. And you wouldn't think that Centrelink has anything to do with health, but um, I do, because I think if you look at um, a person's life holistically... Then you can probably imagine that if you have an issue with Centrelink, it probably creates stress. So it's really good to see resources that are aren't maybe directly about health issues, not just to do with physical health, but um, in, you know, information that can uh, affect your health in, in in other ways. So in this particular instance, I know that Centrelink resources are really well written in in the first place and well translated because they have a process behind the scenes that. Um, takes feedback into account and on this particular occasion I got some feedback from a community member who read them. And he said to me that he feels there's some things that could be improved. So I am actually going to meet with him this afternoon to find out exactly what it is that he, he wants to um, look at. Sometimes feedback from community um, may be a matter of preference or particular style that people express themselves in. So it's really good to workshop it and, and find out what it is that people we um, that people want to say. So we didn't do those translations, but I think... Um, Somehow I'm in the loop, so people tend to contact me uh, to, to provide feedback. Sometimes it's really, really positive. Other times it needs to be workshop or looked at, um, and we're always happy to do that. This episode is brought to you by CEH, the Centre for Culture, Ethnicity and Health. CEH works to improve the health of people from migrant, refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds. CEH offers professional development to individuals and organization in the areas of culture competence, health literacy, working with interpreters and more. Through this training, workplaces have been able to improve their inclusivity, efficiency and their responses to people from migrant and refugee backgrounds. To find out more, go to www.ceh.org.au.
0: And when you say that the Centrelink resource was really well written in the first place, can you talk a little bit about that and why that's important
1: to have a good starting point? Yes. Yeah, so organizations tend to try and cram a lot of in a lot of information into what they write. Or They write in such a way that it's really fluffy and not really direct. And I think most people, when they look for services or when they look for information, they want concrete stuff. So they want to know who, when, how, how much, you know, things that are really basic, um, but that a lot of organisations sort of try and avoid for all kinds of reasons. So the the first step for anybody that's considering um, talking to diverse communities should be, who is the community? What do I want to say? How do I say it? Often, if the English resource is already written, then it's really difficult to uh, to convince people that that's not the way to do it because they've already put a lot of effort. Often, that uh, resource may have gone through you know ethics approval or you know twenty different people in in mm. an organization have so looked at it. They're very proud of it, and then here I am saying to them, you know what, it's just not going to work for those reasons. Yeah, we're asking them to be humble and and think about. Um, you know, is this actually going to work once translated? What, what, what are we trying to say to whom and how? Mm. When you talk about all of these resources,
0: why is it important to use um, proper interpreters who are qualified? Why can't we
1: just use Google Translate? Mm. I think um, machine translation um, and, and Google's one of them have come a long way, particularly in the last five years. So, for those that don't understand how it works, it's a, it's a statistical engine. So it looks at words, but without the intelligence that humans ha- have. So they will look at. Uh, you know, English and compare it to another language and see where they meet. And what that means sometimes, although, like I said, advances have been made, is that we end up with really poor translations and confusion. You know, I can give you an example right now where in Polish, which is, you know, my my native language, an Australian organisation enabled automatic translation on their website, I think it was Google, and um, they were referring to membership and in English, it said something like, Here's, you can, here is where you can find out information about how to become a member. In Polish, it translated it as, as, pe- as penis. Um, uh, member. Because right. member, yeah. you, you know, can mean other things. So um, it's just embarrassing for organisations um, to have resources like that on their website and the worst thing about it all is that when you try and contact them and tell them about it they get really defensive or some of them oh, um yeah. yeah or another another example i think it was the aged care commissioner um whose name was lamb um but the uh, automatic translator translated it into sheep as in you know animal uh. and he did it in e- even in her email address so when you try to like let, let's say you were i don't know german um if you were trying to email this woman, the email wasn't, you know, something, something, lamb at whatever. It was sheep at whatever. So you have to just be really careful. You know, human intervention is required, and it will be the case for years to come. I, I don't oh, think absolutely. we can. And I think, you, you know, like, machine translation is good for gisting or, you know, just getting the sense of it. What another thing people need to remember is that anything you put into Google, Google owns, that's in their terms and conditions. So if you put people's names, anything that's identifiable, they put it into their engines. You know, so even if you're searching, if you're translating anything at all, uh, they own it. The information, any information you put in there, um, so you could be breaching people's confidentiality if you, if you just want to know what something says and it's got someone's name in it, and you no longer own that information because they they put that into the engine. To be able to compare it to other languages because the more they have the more accurate it is so uh, for example if you put a famous book i don't know what, what's a famous english book help me harry potter yeah. harry potter really good example because it's been translated into many languages so um, what google has done is, is it's put that translation into their memory um, and it'll be a perfect translation because humans have done it so Uh, It doesn't mean that Google's translated Harry Potter book. Um, It just means that they've put it into the engine um, and that is why it's a good translation, not because um, the technology is good. Mm. It's almost like crowdsourced. It is, except that um, basically what they've done is they've grabbed um, Harry Potter translation in Greek or French or whatever and they uh, put it into the engine. Mm. And the translation was done by humans in the first place. Yeah.
0: And can you talk a little bit about you mentioned earlier your own personal experience with resources and interpreting? And you said that you had had found some to be a waste of time um, mm. earlier on. Can you talk a little bit about
1: your beginning? I think wastage in the translation and interpreting um, domain still happens a lot. But I uh, have experienced it when I was, in, in particular, when I was working as an interpreter and translator. So you know, twenty years ago, where. I would get um, a media release to be translated for the Victorian government overnight. Um, And this is, we had emails? Yes, we had emails already. So I would receive it, or maybe fax, something like that. (laughs) So I would receive a a fax, which was um, top secret, and I was meant to sit there overnight and produce it. And I'm sitting there, honestly, it was like five or six pages of a media release, and I'm reading it, not understanding a word in English, not because I don't speak English, but because it was written in such a way that nobody was to understand, right? It was so opaque and so high level that that you know I don't even remember what they were announcing. And then uh, my job was to translate it in such a way that would also be meaningless in Polish. um And that went to I don't know thirty different translators, cost the government thousands of dollars. And I, you know I, I, I was sitting there thinking. Why am I doing this? You know, this money could have been spent on something, on interpreting or something really good for the community. So I think there's less and less of that happening. But I think, um, you know, back then translation was like a a solution for everything, you know, and people would be ticking a lot of boxes. Thankfully, I think there's less and less of that. But I still think, you know, it sort of lands on somebody's desk and they go and say, okay, I'll do top five or ten languages, uh, I don't really know how to do it. I'll get three quotes and go for the cheapest, um, or, or you know, I'll do it through Google or w- whatever it is. Why? Why should I um, uh, do anything else? And that conversation in people's head goes on because they don't really see value in language or, or, or communication. I, I think um, so. They don't understand firstly how much work goes into a good translation, but secondly what the job of the translation is. And it is not to put it on your fancy website and it is not to print it off and um, you know, gather dust under your desk. It is to do a job uh, of communicating whatever the message you have to whoever um, you're talking to. Um, and if you want that process to be meaningful, you do have to involve humans and you have to involve communities that should tell you what it is that they want to hear and how they want to hear it. Um, and, you know, now, nowadays we, we don't read stuff. You and I don't don't read stuff. Uh, we consume information in chunks, you know, like there's so much of it um, around that, you know, the way that we communicate to people that don't happen to speak English or don't speak English well should also be adjusted to that. So translation is not always the, the way to do it. You have to really think about how is that information going to be consumed and by who. When you first came to Australia,
0: you had experience with, I guess, on the other side. Mm. Um, so you've seen what it's like for community members because you were one of those community members. I think you were saying before.
1: Yes, yes. Yeah. So I came here in um, 1986 um, as, a, as a refugee. So I was one of the last refugees out of Poland. So the world was no longer taking refugees from Poland because things were changing. And I think um, we we expanded the quota of how many people were meant to come here. But anyway, I was I was only 18 and I was seven months. Pregnant when I came um, you know it's a bit of a sob story but the truth is that I had no idea about anything um, for example uh, after about two years I got a job and I was working at Maya which you know for, for someone that's a recent migrant was a great job mm-hmm. but I wanted to go back to study um, and I was living in St Kilda and um, there was a local paper that would come out once a week and I would read in it that Skillshare which doesn't exist anymore but it was like a pathway to education um, was advertising that they were taking people like you know you could study you could learn about computers and typing and admin and I thought okay well that might be a good thing I'd rather do that than work in a shop so I quit my job because I thought okay well they're advertising that means they must have places right (laughs) so I phoned them I quit my job I phoned them and they like ah no there's an interview process uh, and you have to come and qualify and you might not qualify and uh, you know when I went for the interview I just burst into tears because to me it was just so stupid like what you know I was sitting there thinking why, why were you advertising if you if you knew like for weeks and weeks if you knew that you can't take people so for me certain concepts of how Um, Australia works or how systems work was so foreign and I was just devastated just you know now when I think about it I'm like that was just so dumb but you know you do this sort of stuff just because you don't understand how things work how the culture works here so in any way I got in into Skillshare and then I went on to study further but that's only because I cried I think I was devastated I was like I cannot believe that I've you know um, and I think people that are not familiar with systems or language or how things work will, will make mistakes like that, and sometimes they can be really quite costly. You know, luckily things turned out well for me. But having been at the receiving end of, uh, of just being completely confused about everything, you know, like I remember going to, before Centering, there was a social security office on, on Fitzroy Street, mm. and, I, I, you know, I tried to get the context of of a a pension that people that give you money for not working <laughs> and stuff like that. And it just took me a long time to um to actually get my head around things like that. So I think if we take time to kind of put ourselves into the shoes of people we're talking to, um, then um then the outcomes for everybody will be better and we won't be just sticking boxes, yeah, in in our work. It'll be a more meaningful exchange with people and You know, along the way of my um, terrible journey in 1980s, there were people that actually stopped and thought, okay, here's a young woman uh, with no idea. I'll help her somehow, yeah? So sometimes it's that little bit that somebody did to help that made a massive difference. It was certainly to my life, and I think um, when service providers translate, they should consider that, that, that they're actually going to be helping people, that at the end of the process there's a person, yeah.
0: So how can people
1: access Polaron services now? They can contact us, they can phone us, they can go to our website, which is Um We tend to talk to them before we do anything and often we will turn them away and say, look, you know, go back to the drawing board, go to your ethics committee or whatever and um, this is not how you do translation um, and, you know... How about you consider French for your translation because they'll reach African communities or whatever mm. um, ideas we might have that are a little bit outside of the box. Or we might say to them, look, do a short video, um, do a podcast, don't, don't spend money on something that people aren't going to access. And that conversation, like I said, some is sometimes difficult because they've already done a massive amount of work at their end thinking they're doing the right thing. So for us, it's, it's, you know, trying to educate people that, look, at, at the end of the day, there's a person there, people that you're going to be talking to. And just like, um, you know, with, I don't know what do you call them nowadays, average Australians, um, you have to think about um, that they're not going to read a 78-page document. They just won't. Mm-hmm. Um, and and th- there's no difference when you talk to people who, um, who are linguistically diverse.
0: Oh, thank you so much for coming on to the oh, Health Translations you. podcast, Eva. It's been fun. Thank you. That's it from us today. We've been talking to Eva Hussein from Polaron. Eva's stories about Quick Victoria and Centrelink really helped me understand cultural differences and how this affects the development of translated resources. I was also surprised to learn about Eva's beginning as a refugee in Australia and not surprised to hear about her various achievements interpreting for government officials, diplomats, courts and more. If you'd like to learn more about Health Translations or contribute a resource, go to www.healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. The music for this podcast was created by Zeb Rogerson. This episode was produced by Nicola Emmerich and Annie Tillak-Benton. The podcast was made possible by the Centre for Culture, Ethnicity and Health. For show notes and to learn more, head to www.ceh.org.au forward slash podcast.